tonight, if you will, please take your Bibles to Galatians chapter number 5. I like that song. I, I heard Brother Brian sing that song for many years, and I appreciate the message that it has. A lot of people think that the emphasis of that song is on the anchor. But if you know the way that the anchors are designed, anchors aren't designed to hold a boat because of their weight. Uh, a 12-pound or 20-pound anchor could never hold a, a vessel that weighs several thousand pounds. An anchor is designed to go underneath the water surface and grab onto something. It's designed to find a rock or a boulder of some kind and lodge under that boulder so that when the storms are coming, it's not just the weight of the anchor holding you down, but it's actually the weight of the boulder holding you down. And truly, if your anchor has not found the rock or the foundation that is Jesus Christ, you will be tossed around in this world. And hopefully this morning, if you have not already uh, found your place in Jesus Christ, you can do so this morning. And that's my prayer for you. Galatians chapter number 5. I want to read to you just a few verses. So if you will, try to be very disciplined as we read through the scripture and focus your mind as to what the word of God has for us this morning. Verse number 1, Galatians chapter number 5. The Bible says, Stand fast, therefore... In the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your word and the opportunity to stand and preach your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help me, guide me in the pulpit so that I might be able to clearly communicate the message you have for each and every individual in this room. And Lord, ultimately, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would be moving in hearts uh, in areas that I would not even be aware of. But Lord, I pray that you'd uh, uh, do a work here today that would be special and lasting. I pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, every year we have this... uh, A wonderful thing that many of us uh, love when it comes around. It comes around twice a year. We have our time change. And boy, I tell you what, when time change comes, I hate one and I love the other. Amen? And we have this little bitty phrase to help us remember what season allows us to adjust our clock which direction, right? And most of us would be able to recall that phrase in our mind. Uh, But we, we use it to tell us what season we go backwards and what season we go forward. And what is it? We, we fall, we uh, spring forward and we fall back. That's the little phrase. This morning I want to speak to you on this thought, and the title of the sermon is this, Spring Forward and Fall Back. You see, the context of our passage here in the book of Galatians is Paul has traveled through this uh, area before. In fact, he actually started many churches here in Galatia. 
And uh, could you imagine being a missionary, going to a foreign land, and having to teach a, a group of people an entirely new concept of religion when you got there? In truth, that's what Paul had to do. Many of these people were uh, in Judaism, which is a system by which they can attain salvation by doing good works. And so Paul preaches this message of this new idea of grace, salvation. How that a man could not be justified by the things that he did or the works that he did to impress God, but rather salvation was only found in grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that was the message of Paul. And Paul had a tremendous success and a tremendous trip. And he started many churches and many people were now saved as a result of his missionary journeys. But unfortunately, here in the book of Galatians, what Paul has had to do is write to those churches and say, what has caused you to go back? This is not the message that I preached to you. You you accepted the message and you accepted Jesus Christ, but now... Some people have come into your congregation, they've started teaching you a new doctrine, and it's the same old doctrine from which you first came out of before. I actually used to be the basketball coach at Joshua Christian Academy, and and I'm not a very good coach, and I'm not very good at basketball, but I was available, so they chose me, amen? And uh, uh, what we would oftentimes do is we'd get the team together and we'd start practicing in October. And we play before Christmas break all of our non-conference games. And so you'll play many games, but those are games to just sharpen you and help your team get uh, kind of gelled together as a unit. And so for October and November and even the first part of December, we would all be working. We'd install the offense. We'd get together as a de- defensive unit. We'd work on boxing out and rebounding and, and shooting and free throws. And usually what happened is, the games right before Christmas break, you look at the team and you say, hey, we're making some progress. I tell you, the guys are starting to play as a team. They're starting to get the idea. They're they're really starting to gel as a unit. But then Christmas break would hit. And they'd get three weeks off from school. And what happens in Christmas break is, You know, they're real diligent to lay around and do nothing. And they watch a lot of television, drink a lot of soda, which is not necessarily the best thing for a basketball player. And what, you know, I would leave into the break and say, boy, I'm excited. We're going to get the conference and we're just going to, we're going to blow people's doors off. And then three weeks later, my team would show up and I'm like, all right, boys, let's lace them up. And they forgot how to tie their shoes. I'm like, all right, guys, run the offense, run the offense. And they're like, we have an offense. I got my point guard underneath my center's legs. Down! Sit! I'm like, that's not even the right sport, guys. Come on! And I'm not kidding you. Every year, no matter the tremendous amount of progress we made before the break, after the break, we had almost lost every bit of that work. And that's exactly what Paul was going through. He had left this congregation of people for just a short time. And now he's writing to them with a broken heart saying, Why have you returned to this lifestyle of bondage? Why do you think that your works could impress God? And I am terribly ashamed to say this, but in modern day Christendom, there is this idea permeating people that works do impress God. 
And there's this idea that uh, actually some people believe that works have some dictation on whether or not you'll get into heaven. I tell you, you go knock some doors with me on a Saturday. We'll knock some doors and we'll ask people where they go to church. And they'll say, oh, I go to this church. I go to this church. And then you ask this question. Okay, well, it's not really about going to church. If you were to die today, how sure are you that you'd spend eternity in heaven when you die? And they'll say, well, I'm pretty sure. And you say, okay, well, well, pretty sure. That, that's good that you're pretty sure. What, what would get you into heaven if you think that you got there? Well, I'm a really good person. I go to church, I take my kids to church, I try being a good dad, and I try to be the best person that I can be. I mess up, sure, but I think that I'm better than most. And I want you to know that this idea does not just exist outside of the walls of Joshua Baptist Church. There are visitors and there are members of our church that are trying to gain acceptance from God through the life that they live and the things that they do. But I'm afraid to say to you this morning, when it comes to pleasing God with your life, it is not about what you can do, how much good you can do. It's about a faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you on this thought. Spring forward and fall back. First of all, I want to talk to you about the pressure of an unbearable weight. Here in our chapter, verse number, five, uh, verse number one of chapter number five, Paul says this to this church at Galatia. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Now notice this. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Well, if you read the book of Galatians, you find that people had entered into the church and began to usher in this idea that works did have some uh, 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 dictation on where they would go when they die. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 1, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And here was the problem. These men did not come into the congregation preaching that they had to work their way entirely to heaven. But they made a perfect little cocktail of works and grace. It was this idea that while we do believe in Jesus... If at any point you don't live the life that Jesus wants you to live, you no longer will be going to heaven. And there was this idea that you had to work your way even though Jesus had paid it all. That's what Paul says. It's not another gospel. It's the gospel which we preached unto you, but there are people perverting the gospel. I want you to take your Bibles now to Luke chapter number 18. Luke chapter 18. Now, there is a very familiar passage of Scripture here, which all of us will be able to recognize when we begin to read it. However, the way that the Bible explains to us the reason why Jesus taught like this, I think is something we should all pay attention to this morning. Luke chapter number 18, verse number 9. Now, this is the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. Verse number 9 of Luke chapter number 18. The Bible says, and he spake this parable, now notice, pay attention here, unto certain 
which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that, is, that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, I want to be very clear, the parable is not about humility. And oftentimes it gets turned that way. But the very reason that Jesus launched into the teaching of this parable was there were some who had found in themselves a level of righteousness. And they were trusting in that righteousness. Well, how can a man find righteousness when he compares himself to other men? We grade on the curve, don't we? It's like in high school when uh, you know you tank a test. You absolutely do terrible, and you are praying that the teacher will have mercy, and you say maybe the smartest kid in the class didn't study either. And you hope that the smartest kid in the class made a 70, so that way they take that kid's grade up to 100, and your 30 will get graded up 30 points. And you say, I still almost passed. You see, the truth of the matter is God does not grade on the curve. And while it may give us some level of fulfillment to say, well, I think I'm better than this person and I'm not quite so good as this person. Truth is, God grades on the curve of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus Christ lived 33 and a half years on this earth and faced every temptation that you and I could ever encounter. And he was yet without sin, the Bible tells us. So if you're expecting the best kid in the class to have failed the test miserably, Jesus Christ was the the valedictorian of our class. He got a hundred. There is no curve. And the only passing grade is absolute righteousness. And if you've ever failed at one time, you stand guilty of all the law that God has given us. And before God, we always talk about, well, what are you going to say when you get to the gates, the pearly gates and St. Peter's standing there? First of all, I don't think St. Peter's going to be standing at the pearly gates. But if you did get there, and suppose he was, what would be your answer? Because you'll get laughed on your way to hell if you say, well, I was pretty good. I I did some pretty good things. Jesus Christ paid the debt for every man's uh, penalty that they had to pay. He took upon himself our sins, and he did not only take upon our sins, he became those sins for us, you understand. He became the uh, 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 rapist. He became the murderer. He became the the guilty uh, 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 verdict. He became every man's sin on the cross of Calvary so that we would not have to perform. And what these people had done is they had returned back to this level of expectation, well, if you don't scrub behind your ears and if you don't wear your best tie on Sunday, you'll never make it into heaven. But that's an unbearable weight. When one day my 
uh, sister, well, I'll tell you this story. This is a better story. One day we were on our way to uh, uh, work out for football practice. And uh, as you can tell, I did a lot of that growing up. Um, we were on our way to work out for football practice, and we'd made a, a deal with a, a gymnasium down the road that had some workout equipment. We would go in there about three times a week, and we'd lift, and I would talk most of the time. And unfortunately, my talking got me in trouble on the van ride down to the gym because I told some guys that I could squat 280 pounds. I, to be honest, I was only comparing myself to what they could do because they were like, yeah, I can do 250. I can do 260. And my dad taught me that the last one to lie always wins. Right? You say you caught a 12-inch fish, I caught a 14-inch fish. And so I did this. I said, yeah, man, I, I can do 280 pounds. I no problem. And they're like, I don't believe you. I said, you calling me a liar? Uh, yeah, we are. Okay, I'll prove it to you. So we got there, and I was hoping the squat rack was out of commission, you know, like you get to a pump and it's out of order sign on it. So I was hoping it was going to happen, but unfortunately it was working well that day, greased up and lubed up, ready for me to fail. Uh, I go and I stand under the weight of that bar, and, and the way it works is you have two spotters. You have a spotter on either side, on this side and on that side, and they're holding the outer side of, of the bar where all the weight is, and you stand right here in the middle. And this particular uh, rack, it was a rack, and so uh, the bar went only up and down. And so I'm standing there, and I take the hooks off of the bar, and I'm ready to do this, uh, this weight. I really didn't know how much weight it was Com compared. I was just like, I'm stronger than this guy. I'm stronger than this. Okay, I can do this. And as soon as they let the weight go, you know what happened? I folded up like a pretzel underneath the weight of that uh, bar. I literally looked like a Chinese acrobat uh, circus performer as my legs shot through the roof and I was limboing underneath that bar. I was like, get me up, get me up, get me up. They picked up the weight and they're like, told you you couldn't do it. I was like, y'all put more on there than 280. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I was just comparing myself to the other guy's weight and I said, I can do this, but I collapsed under the weight of my own foolishness. And every man that thinks that they will one day be able to stand before God and say, well, I was able to do some good things. I, was, I gave to charity. I, was, I lived a good life on this earth. I, I, I tried uh, honoring you. I prayed every day. You know what you're doing? You're stacking weight on a bar that you're going to collapse under. There is no way to please God with the deeds that you do. It's an unbearable weight. I want to share with you, secondly, the plight of an unsuccessful cure. The plight of an unsuccessful cure. Look here in verse number 4. Back in our chapter, in Galatians chapter number 5, verse number 4, the Bible says, now this is a, a, an appalling verse, the way that it uses its language. Verse number 4, the Bible says, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Now, you know the Christ we're talking about, right? The Christ that before he left this earth, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. This is the same Jesus Christ who in John chapter 1 was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
who later on we find out in Colossians chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 1 that he was there on the edge of creation and he was the one that spoke the earth into existence. He was the one that said, let there be a, a light. Let there be a, a, a creatures of the sea and of the field. He was the one that by his own power stood on the ledge of nothing and formed everything that you see. It was Jesus who did that. And now despite all the power that Jesus Christ has, and the power of the atoning blood of the cross of Calvary, the Bible says when you begin to add works to salvation, it is absolutely powerless to you. It can't affect you the way it needs to because you've added something that doesn't belong there. One time my family went out to the ranch and we were going to have supper out at the ranch and, and we decided to stop off and get some steaks. And uh, we were excited about the steaks, but my sister decided she wanted to help prepare the steaks. And so it was exciting for us because Mandy did not cook very much back in those days. And so we were excited to see what she could do. And, and so we said, here are the steaks, you take care of it. And my sister was in the kitchen, you know, smoke and flames were coming up. So you know something's happening, whether or not it's good or bad, you don't know. But you know progress is being made. And the steaks come out and they look incredible. Boy, you got steak here, potato here, you got a little dinner roll there. Oh man, I'm telling you, it looked phenomenal. I cut my steak. It was cooked just absolutely perfect. It was, she did a great job. And I put that steak in my mouth, but it tasted nothing like any steak I'd ever had before. Now, I would not say that the taste was bad, but it didn't taste like steak. In fact, you know what it tasted like? Chicken. And you say, there's no way you can make a steak taste like chicken. Ah, Mandy was able to accomplish this tremendous feat. Come to find out, we're like, Mandy, what did you do? What process did you use? And she goes, well, I used this on it. And she pulls out a seasoning container and it says, poultry seasoning. And she had added uh, chicken seasoning to a steak. And you could not taste that it was uh, beef that you were eating. You thought you were eating dark, dark, very dark chicken meat. <laughs> Look, when you add things that don't belong with another thing, you get a product that is not acceptable. <laughs> I think we can all agree we do not want our steaks tasting like chicken, amen? And what a lot of people do is they add their good accomplishments to salvation. But one day you'll stand before God and you'll say, but God, I, I, I was there, I, I tried. And God will say, this is not what my process was. I did everything for you. My son died for you. In fact, earlier in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul says this, if, if there was any other way, for a man to get into heaven, why would Christ have to die? If there was an option B, if there was somebody that could be good enough, do you think God would really watch his son die under cruel torment? 
Absolutely not. There is no other way. Jesus says as much when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is no amount of good works that will get you into heaven. There is nothing that you can do that will impress God apart from accepting his Son as your Savior. And that's the truth. Unfortunately, a lot of people are attempting cures that just won't matter. They won't help. George Washington, two years after his retirement, one day was riding his estate. The conditions were a little bit cold and damp, and he came back with a little bit of a sore throat and a small cough. He didn't think much of it, so he went to bed, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, he woke up and could barely breathe. Obviously, Being such a man of high regard, doctors were called immediately. They were brought in that same evening, and they saw that he was having difficulty breathing because his throat had swollen up so much. The doctors of that day applied the the, the process that they thought was the best, and that process is known as bloodletting. You understand, they believed in those days that when you removed blood from a person's body, it would take down inflammation, and that's exactly what he had. They removed 80 ounces of blood from George Washington, which is actually about 40% of the human's body, uh, uh, a blood supply. Ten hours later, and and it's actually a widely debated uh, topic, George Washington died. And some doctors believe that it was his treatment that killed him and not the actual disease. Look, back in those days, people thought that was the best plan. And our modern-day Christendom, you know what people are thinking is the right plan to get into heaven? Works. Or this beautiful little concoction of works versus grace. And it just doesn't work. Did you know that a poll taken in 2008, uh, uh, an article was written for USA Today, 40% of all Christians polled believed that they could get into heaven because of the works that they did? Forty percent? My friends, there is nothing you can do to impress God. Your best righteousnesses, the Bible says, are as filthy rags before an almighty, heavenly, holy Father. Don't try to cure yourself or remedy yourself There is only one cure that is acceptable to God, or he would not have sent his son, Jesus Christ. The pressure of an unbearable weight, the plight of an unsuccessful cure, finally I want you to notice this, the prescription for a universal solution. Look here in verse number 6. Now we're going to talk about two points and then we'll be done. Verse number 6, the Bible says this, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision. You see, there's a universal availability when it comes to salvation. Circumcision was used to represent the Jew. It was men who had outwardly conformed to the law of God, and so the circumcision would be in reference to the Jew or those that had taken this step. Secondly, there was the uncircumcision, and this represented anybody who was not a Jew or anybody who had not taken this step. In fact, Paul even says that one of his comrades in ministry chose not to be circumcised because he was a Greek. And so the circumcision represents the Jew, the uncircumcision represents the Gentile. And all people of the world are contained within those two groups, Jew and Gentile. 
But the Bible says here in Christ, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. All that matters is if you have Christ. And I'm here today to tell you, if I had been selected by God, or if there had been a selection process of God, I know I wouldn't have been selected. I'd have been on that little line like you were in elementary school, lined up against the wall as this captain and this captain picked teams. And they would have been picking other people, and I'd have been standing there as picks came off the wall, and I'd have been getting my feelings hurt, and I would have just been left to be the one cheerleader standing on the sidelines because I was the odd man out. But I'm here today to tell you that God did not have a selection process when it comes to the process of salvation. He sent His Son, Jesus, so that Jew and Gentile, American, African, European, every single person on the planet of the face of the earth will be able to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's not because of what they've done, and it's not because of what they could do. It's because Jesus loved them and gave Himself for them. The Bible tells us the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some may count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter number 2, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, uh, our Savior, who will have all men to come and be saved. The truth is, Jesus loved you. The truth is, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, Jesus loved you. And when he died on the cross, it was not so that people could make movies about him or artists could put a a portrait up on the wall. It was so that men would not have to work to get to heaven because every man that tries has always failed. It's universal in availability, but it's universal in application. Verse number 6, and we're done. The Bible says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but notice this, but faith which worketh by love. Faith which worketh by love. While this world has tried to so convolute the, this very simple doctrine of grace, People have tried to, I think that's probably the devil's best tactic, is to make people think that salvation was difficult. But truly it is this, knowing that God's word said Jesus loved you, and believing in that love. The Bible says in John chapter 3 verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know what perfect faith is, working in love? It is someone being able to see that Jesus did something for them when He died on the cross, and it is faith in that love that saves a man's soul from hell. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and that He gave His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Love was not founded uh, uh, so that we could look at it and admire it and realize we had no taking in it, but love, perfect love, was Jesus Christ dying on the cross, not for His own guilt and not for His own sins, but for the sins of the world. And it was a perfect And today you don't have to leave this building unaware or concerned about your eternal destination. 
Whether or not you go to hell or whether or not you go to heaven, it is simply by a man knowing God loved him and trusting God still loves him. Oh, and it's not about what you can do tomorrow when you go to work. It's not about how much money you can give to the church from here on out. It's about knowing God loves you and believing God loves you. I'm the... I try to figure out a way to put this, but I would say, I would like to say I'm just money conscious, but truth is I'm probably just cheap. I get sick, and I'll deal with the side effects of this sickness until I can no longer function. You know what I always say? Yeah, my immune system can handle it. I'll take vitamin C. I'll take over-the-counter Tylenol, but there is one thing that I do not want to do, and that's go see the doctor. I don't want to go pay the copay. I don't want to go sit in a waiting room full of a bunch of other sick people. I don't want to go hopefully seeing the doctor and not actually seeing him. I believe he's a unicorn. People think they exist, but nobody really knows. I saw a Sasquatch at my doctor's office last time I went, and I still ain't seen the doctor. I don't want to go in there and tell them my symptoms. I I don't want to get checked off of that little computer that little lady's playing solitaire on. She ain't fooling me. She ain't taking no notes. I don't like the doctor's office. And my wife, as soon as I begin to show any symptoms, I'll get a little runny nose or I'll begin to get a little cough. So you you need to go to the doctor. And I say, I don't want to go to a doctor. My immune system can handle it. But eventually, well, occasionally, there comes a, a little bug that I just can't kick on my own. I think the last time I got sick, I was sick for nearly two weeks because I delayed going to the doctor. But there came a time when I had to admit that I couldn't do it. And there was no amount of drugs that I could get for me, and there was no amount of uh, uh, uh juice or vitamin C or zinc lozenges I could take, I needed to go to the doctor. The truth is, there's a lot of people in this room today that probably need to come to the doctor. No matter how long you put it off, no matter how long you think that you've tried gaining your way into heaven, every remedy you've tried has failed, and every cure you've tried to put into action has failed. But my friend today, the Bible offers you this promise that in Jesus Christ all shall live and in Adam all shall die. If you want to be saved and if you want to hold my hand as we go to heaven, or we don't have to hold hands, it's whatever. But if you want to go to heaven with me, I promise you this on the authority of God's word, that all a man must do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. And you can delay coming to the doctor all that you want. You can put it off, but I promise you this, the symptoms will stay. And you won't be able to figure out your way out of this problem alone. You need to come to the doctor. Don't ever fall back into this lifestyle and this idea that you have to do something to impress God. The only thing that impressed God was when Jesus obeyed, became obedient unto death. And now, my friend, every person that's ever accepted Jesus ever accepted the death of the cross, the atonement of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sins. You know, the Bible tells us it was like Jesus took off his coat and placed it on us. 
And now we are clothed in the righteousnesses of Jesus. We still aren't impressing God. You know what still impresses God? Not that I go soul winning, not that I tithe, not that I, I, I talk a good talk or walk a good walk. What impresses Jesus is every time that he looks at me, every time God looks at me, he doesn't look at my sin. He doesn't look at my faults or my failures or my flaws. He looks at the perfect death of Jesus Christ, and I am clothed in that death and that righteousness. Don't work your way to heaven. Because every time you try to work your way, it won't work out.